planet Earth 66 million years ago. We now know so much about a world that was ruled by the dinosaurs. And the latest imaging technology enables us to bring them all to life. It's always hard to remember exactly where you come up with an idea for a project, but this project I do remember. I was with Sir David Attenborough on a mountainside in Kenya. We were talking about how there's nowhere on earth that nature puts on a greater show than in Africa. And as I sat there, I thought, I wonder if that's always been true. If you could take the whole history of life, when would nature have put on its truly greatest show? And I thought, it must have been when dinosaurs were alive. This is Prehistoric Planet, the official podcast. An Apple TV Plus podcast produced by BBC Studios Natural History Unit. I'm your host, Mike Gunton, executive producer of the series on Apple TV Plus. All episodes are available now. In season two, we're once again bringing long-lost animals back to life. We've seen strange mating dances, super-intelligent feathered hunters, even T-Rex taking a swing. You may well know, on a lot of BBC Natural History shows, at the end, there's a behind-the-scenes bit we call the making-ofs. Well, this podcast is going to be the making-of of all making-ofs. We're bringing you the full story of how Prehistoric Planet was made. Helping to tell the story is series producer Tim Walker. Tim's the person who pulled all the strands together and pushed and pushed to get every aspect of this project over the line. It was like a dream come true, trying to create a world that is as scientifically accurate as it can possibly be, that by the time it comes to the screen, we're all walking, talking, those living animals. Tim will be here with me throughout the podcast, and also joining us is Dr. Darren Naish. I can't emphasize enough what a dream job it is. Darren is our lead advisor, our guru, who steered us through the science of every episode on Prehistoric Planet and he'll be doing the same here on the podcast. But first, we're meeting a man whose resume is extraordinary. He made the Marvel movie Iron Man, an amazing Star Wars reboot, The Mandalorian, and directed The Jungle Book and The Lion King. He is, of course, John Favreau. While John was making those films, his Hollywood world was about to collide with ours here at the BBC Natural History Unit. John was trying to make the animation in Jungle Book and The Lion King look photoreal, as if the animals had been filmed, like in a nature documentary. And the BBC's Planet Earth and Dynasty series had become an inspiration. John is joining us on the line from Los Angeles, and Tim's going to start us off. Hi, John. Hello. What do you want to talk about? Dinosaurs? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Are you set, John? <laughs> yes, I'm all set. Okay, set great. Ready to go. What I want to get into today is how you ended up meeting Mike and how it led to us all working together on this series. And I also want to chat about some of our favourite moments in the show and how we made them. But to kick off, 
I know you studied natural history shows for your films, and I'd love to hear more about it. Can you tell me, why were they such an important tool for you? Well, whenever you start off with a film or a story, something that you're going to be working with over the course of several years, you have to develop, I wouldn't say a mission statement, but a shared understanding of what the goal is going to be. The cliche is like, okay, we're going to do Alien, Jaws in Space. I don't know that that's <laughs> a conversation really Scott ever had, but that's kind of a Hollywood shorthand for you know what the nature of the project is, that it keeps you aligned. And so if you're doing the live-action Lion King, that could mean a lot of things to a lot of people, right? It could be, let's take the animated characters and make them dimensional. Let's keep the aesthetic of what was done before. Now, we had really explored photorealism and how do you make people feel things with photoreal animals uh, now of course a lot in lion king the lions are making jokes and talking and singing but we wanted the sequences that felt naturalistic to be able to sit alongside of a documentary and hopefully not stand out and you might even fool people to think that it is one because most shows or films that you're watching where your main characters are animals, there's a tremendous amount of liberty taken in the design and performance to make them feel more like humans. But planet Earth, well, there's an example of photoreal animals, because they're real, that are making you feel a tremendous amount of uh, empathy. And really sitting at the edge of your seat and, you know, these were these were things that we were sharing amongst ourselves in the production offices just because they were viral moments and like, this is so cool. And then it becomes, you know, let's do our research about what behaviors we want these animals to exhibit. And can we make sequences that are engaging in the way that these documentaries are engaging and not so much in the way that a cartoon would be? And so that became the set of challenges we presented to ourselves. So... That's what we set out to do. And now, now it becomes about how we make the environments look that pretty. What environments do we choose? How do we have the animals act? How do we have them behave? How do we photograph them? How do we edit? And once you know the form, then you know how to push up against it or explore it or propel it. So we decided that those documentaries that Mike had worked on became our guiding principle. Okay, so Mike... One of the things that I think people will wonder is how you two, these two great forces of Hollywood film and the natural world, got together. What happened? It, it took a long time to get this show off the road for a whole load of reasons, partly because it needed the right alignment of stars, and that is both the right team, the right people, the right science, but also the right resources. To make something like this is incredibly ambitious. It's probably the most ambitious thing I've ever done in my nearly, well, over 35 years of wildlife filmmaking. And I always thought this was not a dinosaur series. I always thought this was a natural history series that was starring dinosaurs. So all the techniques of how you capture natural history today had to be reflected as if we had all got inside a time machine, unpacked the gear and started filming. So we had to find a way of replicating that in a world where the animals are created. And it's so easy to get wrong. Um, and I knew I only had one chance at this. And I talked to loads and loads and loads. I'm actually, I've talked to probably every broadcaster on the planet. But in the end, I met Jay Hunt, who I'd worked with when she was controller of BBC One, and got talking to her about this project. And she got it and also was prepared with the extraordinary ambition that Apple TV Plus has to make this happen. 
And one of the things that Jay also brought to the party was that Apple had been talking to John about using as reference for Lion King quite a lot of the programs that I'd been working on. So this strange meeting happened in Jay's office, and uh, and I think she was quite. I think she was a bit nervous about us getting together. And you know, we had this meeting, and within about three minutes, I was talking about my Lion film. You were talking about your Lion King. You got your iPad out. We were looking at shots, and we're talking about how we got this shot and how do you do this. And then we were talking about tracking shots. And Jay sort of sat back, and I think she just sort of folded her arms and let us <laughs> just go. And I knew straight away that we had the same. Same, yeah, the same curiosities. I think you know, so much of these conversations are about the the science or about the technology, but really, it's about the people. I found, and and if people are clicking and share common curiosities and common interests, that's when everything kicks into gear. And I had heard about this project when it was already underway, and I tend to work on projects that I self-generate, either write or come up with, or that I'm involved with as a, a director or producer. But in this case, I had just been finishing off Lion King, and, and we had put so much effort into innovating around virtual photography and uh, virtual cinema. There was no film actually rolling, no set. But all of this technology that we had innovated, we hadn't had any plans to do anything with it. I, I really wanted to continue to explore what could be done with that. And then when I heard about this project, it seemed wonderful, especially with the pedigree of the people that were already involved and uh, seemed such a natural, just a natural thing to do, to collaborate and try and make this once-in-a-lifetime collaboration of different skills and different experiences. John, could I ask you, after you'd made Jungle Book and The Lion King, people hearing that you're making something about dinosaurs might think, yeah, that's the natural next step. Why, why do people want to do, do dinosaurs? I think if you look historically, whenever there's new visual effects... Everybody makes dinosaurs with it, whether it's stop motion, early hand-drawn animation, uh, some of the most beautiful initial uh, stop motion drawn animation was was a dinosaur that would travel, you know, with vaudeville shows and they'd project it on the screen. And of course, you have The Lost World, Willis O'Brien, you have Jurassic Park, Spielberg. Every new technology seems to take a crack at dinosaurs. Like, as soon as you could make something out of the magic of technology, the first thing people want to do is dinosaurs. We're just fascinated by it. Why do you think that is? I think it's hardwired in. I think it's the ultimate predator. And I think that going back to when we were tree dwellers, we react to things with fangs, things that are big, things that could hunt you, you know, and that's why you have dragons in mythology. You have, mm. you know, just like with an, uh, an animal, you don't have to show a cat what a mouse is. There's just something in the wiring. I guess it's part of our survival mechanisms. You know, I think I think the roots of that are probably in evolution and in what are the earliest versions of us were very concerned with avoiding. <laughs> yeah, it's a good you know? it's a good survival strategy. Big scary yeah. thing with teeth walking towards you, run away. Mm. Um, at the heart of the series, the ethos is flipping that notion of the monstrous to become the magnificent and the majestic. So the dinosaurs and the other animals around them, they were they were animals just like we have today and they would have done normal behavior and that's the outset of the series was trying to show those normal behavior. Well, that's what's interesting about it, right? There's a certain um standard that we hold to to be scientifically accurate. But there it's very hard not to empathize with these creatures because you're seeing survival, you're seeing 
aspiration, and that's something that that whole language uh, we borrow actually more from the films you all do mm. more than mm. the films I do because you're you know you're you're dealing with th- those very specific uh, baseline human impulses and desires and fears. Can we get specific about some of the aspects of prehistoric planet? How did you choose which stories to tell? Well, it was very important that we portrayed these extraordinary animals as animals. They're not monsters. And the range of behaviours in the natural world is what makes it so utterly fascinating. And we wanted to reflect that in the series. So you have everything from courtship behaviour to feeding behaviour to parental care to competition over feeding, just swimming for the joy of it, flying for the joy, all the things that animals do. And I think by doing that, it paints a much more accurate portrait of what the planet was like 66 million years. It was teeming with animals. It was huge numbers and huge variety. And we just wanted to make sure that we reflected that. And of course, part of the fun of that is it allows you to then cast, as you would a movie, to make sure you've got all the A-listers, but also some strange ones, some oddities in there. In the first series, we had a crazy creature called Dinochirus. Through the water wades one of the most bizarre of all dinosaurs. Jay often describes it as, you know, that, that game you have as a kid, which is a book which has three different blocks on it, and you, you keep opening different ones so you can mix and match different animals. That's what it looks like. It looks like a made-up animal. It's even taller than T-Rex. And its massive duck-billed snout is very effective in gathering water plants. Part of the grammar of making a a big blue-chip blockbuster natural history show, you have this surprising variety because audiences want to see the familiar and they want to see them doing the things that they're famous for, but they also want to see things they've never seen before, doing surprising things that they've never seen before. So it was just part of the DNA of the series. There were things that I had no idea even existed, and I certainly had no idea they did what they did until I worked on this project. So that was a great education as well. Okay, I want to think back to the very first scene that opens the series. A Tyrannosaurus Rex taking a swim. It takes a creature that is familiar and everyone feels as though they know it. It doesn't show it as a monster, as we've usually seen T-Rex, and we get a really unusual bit of parental behaviour. This is an adult male with his young family. John, when you first saw that, were you surprised to see that side to a T-Rex? Yeah, I, you know, T-Rexes, I always thought, were like, you know, they, they laid their eggs... They went off and ate a brontosaurus and the (laughs) eggs hatched and then they, you know, and then they went off and ate something else. It became more interesting to me once I understood, you know, like to understand that there might be an emotional connection over the brood. Just the amount of um, scientific rigor that goes into it is the the part that I didn't, you know, because it's just effortlessly on the surface, but, but to have it. A deep understanding of it, I think, adds to what makes this show so special to work on. Because in, in my business, you could make up the most interesting thing. Yeah. And But there are limitations here because the, the paleontological community, the scientific community, doesn't have that same level of forgiveness for uh, artistic <laughs> extrapolation, should I say. I think the thing that made us feel 
we were on the right track was the reaction from the scientific community was, wow, guys, you were quite conservative in what you did. Yes. And that, I think, that's where you want to be. T-Rex has the most powerful jaws in nature and can bite with the force of over five tons. The young are keen for a taste, but he's not sharing it. It's time for them to learn to hunt for themselves. Okay, Darren, we need to bring you in here because when people saw that, they were just amazed and they kept asking, how do we know that T-Rexes looked after their young 66 million years ago? So when we have a question like this, did Tyrannosaurus rex look after its babies? The first thing we do is we look at the living relatives of dinosaurs like T-Rex. And on the one hand, birds are close relatives of extinct dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus. Birds are living dinosaurs. And then distant cousins of dinosaurs like T-Rex are crocodiles and alligators. And in both of those living groups of animals, crocodilians and birds, both of them look after their babies after they've hatched. So we can say to start with that we should assume that's the case for dinosaurs like T-Rex. They're looking after their babies after they hatch. So who's looking after the babies? Is it the, the mums or the dads? Well, the two living groups of animals actually give us different answers. In crocodilians, parental care is mostly female-led. And in birds, it's actually 50-50. There's a, about 50% of species males contribute to looking after babies. If we then look at the birds that are kind of roughly most similar to dinosaurs like tyrannosaurs, so I'm thinking big flightless birds, cassowaries, etc., males lead parental care. So that's making you think, oh, actually, it could well be males that are looking after their babies. And a final piece of evidence actually comes directly from the fossil record. We now have actual fossils of dinosaurs sat on top of egg-filled nests. And scientists have cut open the bones of those dinosaurs and they've looked at the bone interiors. Now, a really interesting thing about birds is where does that eggshell actually come from? How do you grow eggshell? Well, you need a great amount of calcium and where does that calcium come from well birds have to go and deliberately eat certain things that give them calcium and they then store that calcium inside their bones as a special tissue called medullary bone and it's been identified in the fossils of dinosaurs people have found medullary bone and of course the only animals laying eggs are females so if you find medullary bone then you know your specimen is a female what if it doesn't have medullary bone what if it shows no sign of the inside of the bone having undergone recent growth changes what we call remodeling well we can say that no remodeling has happened on the bones of this animal so this one isn't a female it is a male and that's proven to be the case for these fossil dinosaurs. They were dads, they weren't mums. So here we have direct evidence for dads being important parents in at least some extinct dinosaurs. So to put all of this together, now think of what specifically is Tyrannosaurus rex doing. It is highly likely that it's the males doing the baby care and that is what we went with. Let's get specific about like the formula that we use because like, okay, so if it's the skin texture, we may have a new piece of fossilized evidence that would explain that this is scaled or the soft tissue might look this way. So that that's something that's easy for everybody to understand. But then there's other assumptions that are made about behavior and like breeding patterns and things like that, where you're able to uh, transpose what we know about the current animal kingdom and make assumptions with, with a certain degree of certainty. 
And could you just talk through that a little bit? Because that's the one that, that that's out to me is also the secret sauce. I, I find people are really fascinated by that. It doesn't feel like as big of a leap when you look at it scientifically as it might appear. Yeah, there are a number of ways of answering that. Mother Nature comes up with a surprisingly similar set of solutions to the challenges that life throws at animals. So today, for example, if you find an animal that lives in Australia and an animal that lives in America, and they both live in the same type of environment, they're not related at all, but evolution will have driven them to come up with almost identical solutions called parallel evolution. So give an example to me for that, because I think that's really profound. So, so for example, um, eating insects is a really good mm -hmm. thing to do if you're a small animal, because it's full of protein and there are millions of them. So catching insects, a lot of insects live in the bark of trees. So in, in the UK and in the US, there are a whole group of animals that hunt insects in trees. And they're birds, woodpeckers, and they hammer their beaks against the bark right. and they stick their tongues in and they grab these insects out. Now, in Madagascar, there are no woodpeckers, but there's the same challenge. And there's an animal which is a primate. It's called an eye eye. And it has an extended finger, which it taps in the same way onto the bark of the tree, and then it sticks mm -hmm. its finger into the hole and pulls the insect out. And then there's another group of animals in Africa, which again, utterly unrelated. The aardvark type animals, again, have a long sticky tongue, which they, they break into rotting wood mm -hmm. and stick this long sticky tongue. So there's lots of different animals all doing the same behavior, having the same anatomical adaptation to do that across space. Now, if you flip that through 90 degrees and talk about across time, Mother Nature and the world has been generating the same challenges for animals throughout time. So Mother Nature has come up with the same sorts of solutions. So if you have a similar sort of animal and a similar sort of biological challenge, you can be fairly confident that there'll be a relatively small number of options it can be. Now, you go back to Mononychus, which was a termite-eating dinosaur, which had a tool to get into the bark and a long sticky tongue to pick up the termites. And that's how you drive those decisions to reconstruct the animal in that way. Right, right, right. That was a great sequence, yeah. Such hypersensitive directional hearing gives her a mental map of this hollow log and what lies within. She now uses the weapon that gives this hunter its name. Mononychus. Single giant claw. Just what she needs to open a termite's nest. I mean, it has been a, an absolute dream project in so many ways. And if I was to put everyone on the spot, John, Mike, Darren, and say, out of season one, what was your favourite sequence? John? Um, I, I, maybe because you just talked about the Mononychus one was yeah. was really... Well, it's beautiful, isn't was, it? Yeah. It was beautiful. I liked it because how much life was breathed into the animated creatures. It wasn't the flashiest one, but it was just very well executed. Mononychus is a desert specialist. I love the texture of the feathers, the art direction, the photography, yeah. the lighting. Bare legs help keep her body cool. Feathers on her body shield her from the sun's rays. And they provide her with a super sense. You just get lost in it. You know, I find myself just resigning myself to experiencing it and just enjoying that story about this character. They form facial discs that help her detect the faintest of sounds. What about you, Darren? 
my favourite sequence is Battling Titans, it's Dreadnoughtus, because mm. I, I've just always wanted that vision of sauropods to be brought to the screen, that mm. there were these you know, awesome things that must have massed in huge numbers, and wow. So that one had the, where they're uh, swinging the necks to each other like giraffes, yeah. right? And then we had the, uh, the inflatable... Yeah, the neck sacks, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That one had everything. Dreadnoughtus. If you think about all the opportunities we had to show dinosaurs and other animals at the time as flamboyant and over the top in terms of display structures and such, what do we do? Mm -hmm. We did not go silly on this. We did not go over the top. No. The Titanosaur's immense necks are supported by an ultra-lightweight air-filled skeleton. Their hollow neck bones are connected to a series of bellows that inflate bizarre gula air sacs. I've got a bit of flack for the, the inflatable neck sacks thing, you know, quite, and rightly so. I'm, what happened? Yeah. Tell yeah. me. Let's, I want to hear it. <laughs> Go to an academic conference, get beaten up by all these sauropod experts. Why? Well, what'd they what say? Did, they, they were like, why did you do that to our beloved Dreadnoughtus? And I was like, you know, just <laughs> because the, the argument is that that makes it look like it's a thing that we know for certain. We don't know for certain that it pertains to that specific sauropod. It's like, this is a possibility for sauropods. We've got to explore it. This huge pool, white with dust, has held the center stage for two weeks. And his display has, so far, intimidated all challengers. So the air would travel through the bones of the necks of the sauropods? Is that what led to the... Yeah, it's based, uh, very briefly, it's based on two things. Number one is that these dinosaurs were incredibly pneumatic, which is a thing hard for us to understand. We don't have it. They have this air sac system where when they take a breath, air doesn't just go into the lungs, it goes into these sacs that are distributed throughout the whole of the skeleton and throughout the whole of the body interior. And if you've got that, then it's easy to co-opt it some way into inflatable structures on the outside. And we see this many times in birds and, of course, extinct dinosaurs non-bird dinosaurs they just seem to be like so flamboyant so over the top in terms of display structures we've got to get that in there somewhere so mike we're not supposed to have a favorite <laughs> but have you got a favorite sequence well do you know it is as you say it's uh, no one's supposed to have a it's like choosing a favorite child but i and i do change my mind but what about your children or about <laughs> well, definitely about my children uh but i keep coming back to one sequence actually it's in the north america's episode and one of the things that's really hard to do surprisingly in this world and in this style of program making is a big set piece you'd be surprised whereas in in a natural history documentary nature does a lot of that choreography for you it's quite surprisingly hard to do in our world in this um, prehistoric planet world but there is one sequence which i think is remarkable because it's got four players but three of the sort of superstar players these alamosaurs are 100 feet long and weigh some 80 tons. So huge that no predator can tackle them. It's got a massive great sauropod. It's got T-Rex. It's got the coolest, most scary flying reptile of all time, Quetzalcoatlus. And it's got a heroic death. This male is around 70 years old but his long life is now coming to an end. 
It's got a face-off between two of the top predators of all time, and it's got a cheeky little character as a, as a sort of B character. Tyrannosaurus Rex, with his six-inch long teeth, tearing through an Alamosaurus tough skin is not a problem. The execution of it is both down on the ground with the animals, but we've also shot it from the air in a way that I think, if I was doing that for planet Earth, I'd be super excited. A carcass as big as this soon attracts more formidable competition. Quetzalcoatlus, a giant pterosaur. One of the few creatures that will challenge an adult tyrannosaur. My favourite was the T-Rex courtship sequence in Freshwater. The injured one? The, the injured, injured one. one we you think, think is that gonna... there's a bit of a misdirect yeah. in that one that yeah. I like, right? Yeah. Another T-Rex. But this newcomer has a different smell. I love the way it's filmed as well. As If you were there for real, you'd be a really long way away. It's a female. She's younger and smaller. But nonetheless, she might also be a rival. He, however, makes it clear that he's not interested in fighting. The vulnerability of exposing the neck? Yeah. He would prefer to mate. I've just thought of another favourite, by the way. What's that? Beelzebufo. Beelzebufo, the devil toad. One of the largest frogs that has ever existed. It's a scary thing, but it's a frog that's sort of slightly embarrassed at how ugly it looks. <laughs> he won't need to feed again for a month. You try and think of the sort of range of behaviours you want, and you want sad, and you want dramatic, and you want poignant, and you, but you also want humour. Again, it's the familiar with the unexpected. And the familiar with the unexpected can be a familiar dinosaur, a familiar animal doing unexpected behaviour, or it can be a familiar setting within an unexpected character, which is the Beelzebufo in this case. To me, I find it fascinating that, you know, here we are in the in the world that we're living in, where we've evolved for hundreds of thousands of years, or, or perhaps what we're seeing around us a few million years. And you're realising that it was over 100 million years of evolution that creates, uh, back during the Cretaceous period, where you can get even more extreme versions of whether it's color breakdown or behavior in a way that would mathematically be more feasible when you have that much more time for differentiation, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the starting point for obviously anything that, that we opted to show in Prehistoric Planet is the quality of the fossil record. And I think that, you know, we're still, even at this point in history, still fighting against the expectation that because we're talking about life of the past, that it should be kind of prototype life. And that's clearly not the case. These animals are like on par with living ones. In fact, in some ways, they almost look like animals designed from the future. You know, they're so like, intricate and sort right. of precise in the way they're put together. So it's more like sci-fi. It would look like a sci-fi world, uh, uh, arguably. Yeah, yeah. The current studies on diversity over time have completely blown away the old... The old idea when I was a student was that life has increased in complexity over time. And more and more stuff has evolved over time. That is now thought to be wrong. The complexity because of life... Because of the hard reset of the extinction? Exactly, exactly. The massive extinction, this big one at 66 million years ago, yeah, resets a lot of stuff. Is it like somebody from the Middle Ages seeing 
the the ruins from the Roman Empire that was far <laughs> more complex than what they were dealing with, and just not knowing, not yeah. being able to understand even more than the drab. It just what well, it would just look like a highly diverse complex this idea there's a sort of misnomer or misthinking that old means primitive as darren said but every animal is adapted to the best it can be to survive at that particular time in its existence so if we were to jump in that time machine and go back 66 million years ago there would be animals there which would be superbly adapted to survive in that particular environment they would be utterly extraordinary creatures in fact, we John, we John and I did talk about exactly this when we met. We were saying, what's the, going to be the cast? And it was, if you're going to do the thing, you've got to have your superstars. And T-Rex lived at this time. So, you know, right. when, that was the question you said. Is You said, is T-Rex in this? And I said, yep, yeah, that's why we're going to pick that. And out of that, luckily, around T-Rex, there were a whole series of superstar animals. So it's, it's the closest to where we are today. And the stories are there about, of course, the... It's basically the, like right before the meteor hits exactly. right yeah. i mean that's kind of it yeah yeah i got a nod from darren that's very rare yeah <laughs> that's very encouraging journey to a time when nature put on its greatest show for millions of years the lands of planet earth have been carved by water global temperatures are high there are violent storms and torrential rains. Obviously, there's a lot of CGI across the series, but I think what people might not realise is that there's also so much that wasn't. Can you talk a little bit about the filming of this and why we took your technology that you developed, right. on Lion King, the virtual studio pipeline but we incorporated real world locations yes that was very different than what we did because we were completely digital but on this it works so well because you know with planet earth so much of what most people react to whether they consciously know it or not are the beautiful uh, landscapes and the photography of the environments and the camera movement the cinematography the color the music all of those things we filmed just as though we were doing it with a, a modern day documentary and then we brought our characters in, but I, I think almost all the environments are based on photography that we're doing in the field, except underwater. We create those sometimes, yeah. Do you think that if we'd created those full backgrounds in CGI, we would have been able to match the real world? No. No, you just can't. You could, you could get it right sometimes, but there's mathematical complexity in the way water sprays and splashes and you could do really good simulations that are very convincing and and might even fool somebody but you can't mother nature just has us beat and it also changes the nature of how it's done because when you're photographing you know you know tim you're you know better than i do you go out in the field you see something beautiful and you put a camera on it you get get it when the light's just right there's something that speaks to you and you select from something you're observing which is much much different than creating something to fill a frame it just is a different part of the brain. And you try to fool people and fool yourself to think that you're finding it, but really you're creating it. You know, just like you could go on a hike and everybody just stops and sees a sunset and says, oh my God, that's magnificent. It's a lot different from saying, okay, let's draw a sunset. Let's yeah. all draw it together. Yeah. Everybody has a different idea in their head of it. John always has that, don't you, that line, keep the, make the real look fake and the fake look real. Because, <laughs> you know, there's such beauty in nature. Let's make sure that that gets its 
moment in the sun, if you like, in the in the shows. Um, you know, you, th- there was some discussion about doing lots of CGI backplates, and in fact, some of the sequences are all CG. But there's a there's a real there's a real joy. It's it's a kind of it's a kind of craftsman's joy of working with real things as well as working with the CGI world, which I think everybody both the animators and the people who shot it, the producers, all of us really enjoyed that amalgamation. But of course, the thing is that nature is a better storyteller than any human being that's ever lived. And when nature tells us stories and you record that in the field, you get stories that nobody could ever imagined. So it's quite an interesting exercise in thinking because the scripting in the prehistoric planet has to replicate having gone out and captured footage edited it, and then put it together in a cutting room. That took time for us all to get our heads around. But funny enough, even in our CG world, the combination of all these brains working on it, every now and then, you get a sort of explosion of surprise. This is Hoffman's mosasaur, the ocean's deadliest predator. But he's not here to eat. He's come to be cleaned. Now it's time to shed old skin. And when you need to look your best, nothing but an all-over body scrub will do. Something that we learned from you, John, is it's all part of the magic trick. But it all comes down to storytelling, doesn't it? And, you know, why do you think that we all love stories about animals? I just think we love stories. I think there's a lot of information that comes our way And I think story is the way that we defrag our brains, the way that we consolidate information. And I think dreaming is a part of that. And I think storytelling is a cousin of dreaming. And I think that we organize information around what's emotionally resonant to us. And our emotional resonances, you know, whether it's something traumatic that you could remember and you feel like you've seen it in slow motion, you could live out every detail of it, or a happy day of a child being born, those are moments that stick in our memory that are over-indexed in our memory. Those neural pathways are not overwritten easily. I think a lot of it has to do with the passing down of information from one generation to the next and sitting around the campfire talking about the hunt, explaining where you find the prey, knowing where the berries grow. And you create stories around that so that the next generation could inherit that knowledge without having to actually learn it on their own. And I think that that's kind of the basic underpinning of all of it. And then as we get more and more technology and more sophisticated language and storytelling tools, we could communicate it. But I think the base, you know, the the, the base function of it is still the same. And I think that it's about emotional resonance. And, and that's what makes people remember or want to p- make it interesting or make people want to pay attention. Okay. Thank you so much. I think we're nearly at the end now for this episode. So, John, it's been a joy to relive the making of this and working with you has just been a real privilege. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. I'll talk to you all soon. That's great stuff. Thanks very much, John. Thanks so much. Bye. Take care. Bye. Darren, thank you as well. And, Mike, before we finish, I love talking to John. I'm always really surprised how interested he is in the minutiae of the storytelling and people might assume that because he's a Hollywood star he might come across a bit differently than that but the level of detail that he wants to get into is amazing isn't it? That's one of the things that's been such 
a joy working with John, the detail he went into in that, the questions he was asking. And funnily enough, when we started, of course, John's obsession was about the VFX detail and my obsession is about the natural history detail. But as the project has gone on, it's kind of overlapped and I've started to get a bit obsessed about the VFX detail and John's become more obsessed about the natural history detail. So we've kind of stepped into into each other's worlds slightly, which is I think is fascinating. Probably one of the reasons why the series feels uh, so different and so authentic because that laser focus into getting that authentic detail right has has permeated and has become part of the DNA of everybody on the production. I've just got one final question for you. Because you came up with this series about 12 years ago. It's been a long old road. And I want to ask, when was the moment that everything felt like it had come together and you felt as though you might have actually achieved what you set out to do? Well, I think the time when you absolutely know it's worked is effectively the last thing you do, which is to sit in the final mix when the pictures are done, the commentary's done, the music's done, all the sound effects are done, and you play that final review in a fantastic Dolby studio and you have all the sounds and you have a massive screen. And it's very unforgiving. If there's anything that's off, it shows up in that environment. And when you watch that and you think to yourself, no... That's 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 good. Yeah, I'd 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 add in an additional layer there, as I, we have the the voice record with Sir David when he puts the final cherry on the top of the cake. Before that, we've had the completion of all of the shots. Before that, we've had all of the filming. We've had the orchestral record. As you say, when you watch it for that final sign off, but then there's one extra stage, which is then when somebody mentions it to you after they've seen it. And they, and, and they tell you about something that, that you've made. And that always puts a smile on my face. Actually, I just thought there's other times, both David Attenborough times. So getting David to agree to do this was not an easy task because he's got so much else on his plate. And also, you know, this is a departure for him because he has very, very clear views about what he thinks makes a good show. And, you know, anything that w- might feel inauthentic, I think he wouldn't have liked. So I, you know, I had to talk to him quite a lot about this. Anyway, in the end, the only way really was to say, right, I'm going to show you a rough cut of the show. And I went up to his house and flipped open the computer and he sat in his chair and I pressed play and he sat there and watched all 40 minutes of it. Didn't say a word. His fingers were sort of slightly tapping on the arm of the chair and I thought, oh, what's that? <laughs> anyway, at the end of it, he just, he's, he, he's, he's got great drama. He's, he just slowly closes the top of the laptop and turns and says well I can't imagine how you could possibly have done it any better <laughs> and it was the most extraordinary moment in your life you know what the dial was is it going to be absolute disaster or is it going to be and it was and so that was a great moment and then the other moment was when we finished the last recording of the last episode and he said well is that it then and I said well yeah he said well when's the next one I said well no David that, that is it and he said oh no not, well, there aren't any more I said no that's it he said well it's been one of the most enjoyable things I've done when you think that he's done, <laughs> I don't know, 500 shows or more, 1,000 shows, I think that says a lot. This has been Prehistoric Planet, the official podcast. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts and watch Prehistoric Planet on Apple TV+, where available. All episodes are available now. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast, 
produced by BBC Studios Natural History Unit and hosted by me, Mike Gunton, along with the Prehistoric Planet team. Our executive producers are Kate Taylor and Lee Bacon. The producers are Tiffany Cassidy, Bina Kutani and Tom Bonnet, with additional producing from Hannah Rogers. The engineer is Peregrine Andrews. Extracts from the television series narrated by David Attenborough. The main title music for Prehistoric Planet was composed by Hans Zimmer and Andrew Christie. Original music by Hans Zimmer, Andre Rosman and Cara Talve for Bleeding Fingers Music. The score producers are Hans Zimmer and Russell Emanuel, and the score supervisors are Greg Rappaport and Marsha Bow. The music is performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales.